Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to show what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experiences, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those up in the, in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance, so we won't be taking any calls today. Well, this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome Christina Baker-Klein to WERU. Her new novel, The Exiles, was published in August by William Morrow. Many listeners will be familiar with Christina's work, including the bestseller Orphan Train, and in 2017, A Piece of the World, a novel based on her research into Christina Olson and her 30-year connection to the artist Andrew Wyeth. Wyeth's painting, Christina's World, was part of the inspiration for that novel, and this year, our Christina, Christina Baker-Klein, rescued that painting from the closets of the Museum of Modern Art. But that's another story. So we're so glad to have you here, Christina, to talk about The Exiles. Um, oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So The Exiles is, is um, uh, set in the uh, 18th century. Is that right? Is that right? 19th, early 19th, 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 1840. Yeah. Right. Um, why don't you um, get us started by introducing us to one of the characters and the, in the, the dilemma that she finds herself in um, shortly after the novel starts. Why don't you go ahead? She's just, this is Evangeline. She's just been arrested and she's on her way with a guard to Newgate Prison. Great. Okay. I'm going to read for less than a minute, uh, (laughs) but I think this will give you a sense of um, the predicament that Evangeline is in. This is a, she's a governess and she's never had any experience with the uh, penal system and she doesn't really know what she's in for. So here she is in the carriage on the way to Newgate Prison. Now, sitting in the drafty carriage, Evangeline moved her shackled wrists to the left side of her body and rubbed the place beneath her petticoat where she tucked the monogrammed handkerchief. With the fingers of one hand, she traced its faint outline, imagining she could feel the thread of Cecil's initials intertwined with the family crest, a lion, serpent, and crown. It was all she had, would ever have, of him, except, apparently, for the child growing inside her. The carriage made its way west toward the river. No one spoke in the chilly compartment. Without realizing what she was doing, Evangeline inched closer to the solid warmth of the constable next to her. Glancing down, he curled his lip and shifted toward the window, widening the space between them. Evangeline felt a prickle of shock. She had never in her life experienced a man's revulsion. She'd taken for granted the small gifts of kindness and solicitude that came her way. The butcher who gave her choice cuts of meat, the baker who saved her the last loaf. Slowly it dawned on her. She was about to learn what it was like to be contemptible. Mm. Wow. Wow. 
tell us a little bit about how you came to write this incredible novel. Um, I think there's a, you've talked about three strands in your life that uh, led you here. So tell us a little bit about more about that. Sure. Well, it's often not until you finish a book that you understand your motivations and your influences and uh, all the bits and pieces that led you to a particular story. Uh, and it wasn't until I'd actually handed in the exiles that I began to trace in my own mind the strands that um, wove together ultimately to create it. I, When I was in my 20s, uh, my father, a historian at the University of Maine, went to Austra- went to Australia, to Melbourne, actually, to teach for a year with my little sisters and my mother. And he read The Fatal Shore, which is this monumental book by Robert Hughes about what Hughes at the time called the founding of Australia. They don't really call it that anymore, but when the British colonists came. And he, my dad gave me his marked up dog-eared copy to read, and I was as obsessed with as he was, but I was particularly obsessed with one chapter, which was about the convict women and the Aboriginal people who'd been there when the British arrived. It was called Bunters, Mollies, and Sable Brethren, which is what they were called. Um, and the book was 688 pages, and the chapter was not very long. It was That was it on those uh, those people. And that was what interested me the most. So I got a Rotary Fellowship to Australia and I went for six weeks and I asked lots of obnoxious questions that people didn't have much interest in answering at the time about their history. Because until fairly recently, uh, and this was a while ago, this was in the early 90s, uh, Australia has grappled with its history and in fact sort of tried to keep a lot of it um, tamp down quiet the way America has done with aspects of our history. And so I got back to America. I wrote a book with my mother on feminism, which was in which we interviewed 60 women, uh, mothers and daughters of the second wave of the feminist movement. And I, in that process, I became very interested in women telling the truth about their lives, telling their own stories and then I taught in a women's prison. I'd taught in prison before, but as an adult, I, I did in college, but as an adult with children of my own, I taught memoir writing. And these various bits and pieces sort of came together when I read an article in the New York Times, a short piece about female convicts with children being sent over to Australia on repurposed slaving ships. And I was fascinated and wanted to learn more. It was a nonfiction piece. And that was where it all happened. And I thought, this is a big story, and this is a story I'd like to tell. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the story of um, the exiles. You've introduced us to Evangeline, who um, is actually one of those who's transported um, uh, from England. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the plot um, without giving too much away. (laughs) Sure. So I envisioned this novel as a sort of passing of the baton from one woman to the next with the story threaded through Uh, actually a true life, a true story of an Aboriginal girl named Mathena who lived in Tasmania in the 1840s. Um, I start with a woman that you've heard about, Evangeline, who is, as I said, an educated but poor 
girl. She's 21, woman, young woman, and she's a governess. And she was sort of a stand-in for the reader in my mind because, you know, most people who read novels are readers. And Evangeline is a reader and she's literate. And she's not at all accustomed to the world into which she is thrust. Uh, she doesn't know anything about it. But so she comes to it with a lot of shock and awe about what's happening. And she describes things pretty thoroughly, whereas some of the women we meet later are, are inured to many of the charms of the penal system in England, brutal penal system in the 1840s. And um, their experience is different. So Evangeline begins the story. And then we move on to Hazel, who is a 16-year-old herbalist and midwife whose mother taught her all the tricks of that trade and also pushed her out the door to steal as a child. And so she has a lot of conflicted feelings about that mother, but she also has a lot of skills that are very useful on the ship and in this new colony of Australia, of Tasmania. And, um, and then eventually we end up with Ruby, who is the daughter that Evangeline is pregnant with when we begin the book. Mm -hmm. So those three women are the main focus of the story. Um, Evangeline, well, this, the, the three white women, and then Mathena, who is a, a young girl, 8 to 11 in the story. Um, and so you get the story from their perspective. So um, if Evangeline, or Evangeline was um, shocked by what she found, so was I as a reader, never having really kind of thought about um, what the penal system in the 1840s was. Um, and presumably, um, England as the example of the quote unquote, um, the, the developed world, um, it was just incredible. How, how did you kind of discover some of that story? I guess part of it from the, the book that your father passed along, but, but you did your sure. own research as well. Well, I actually was fascinated with all of that, I think, because I grew up, I was born in England, I have, I'm a, I have dual citizenship, and lived there for a total of nine years, and did a lot of exploring with my family when we were young, but then also as an adult when I went back for graduate school, and went to castles and prisons and Tower of London, I was fascinated with how the British treated their prisoners over the years, even long ago. I was interested in this. So I came to this story with a lot of reading and a lot of knowledge, a lot of places I'd gone to look at jail cells and Newgate Prison doesn't exist anymore, but plenty of places like it do as museums in England. And when I was um, actually after graduate school, only a few years ago, I taught in London for two summers and I was writer in residence at a university called Fordham University, in, which is the sort of University of New York City. Um, and their tagline, the tagline of that university is New York is our campus. And I taught a class called London is our campus in London. And I took my students all over the city and we went to many museums, libraries, places of interest, cemeteries, jails. And um, I I really think that being there then and doing all this research with my students um, also set me on this path. So the point is, I was fascinated with the class stratification of England, what happened to people on the bottom rungs of the ladder, how England is still largely class segregated, but that's slowly changing, how Brexit, which I do not agree with, 
is a manifestation of some rage, some class rage that is important to look at clearly, and how for the women who ended up in Australia, those strict social delineations dissolved. And the convicts who had a tough time of it, a real tough time of it, as the, you know, in prison in England, on those terrible convict ships, and even in these brutal places in Australia, the ones who had the wherewithal to survive um, actually made good and ended up, a number of them ended up having opportunities they would never have had in England and able, were able to sort of zip along the social ladder, mm-hmm. even to marry free settlers and landed gentry in a way that they couldn't when they were um, so delineated by, by class in England. Of course, the Aboriginal people did not have that opportunity, and it was a brutal life once the British came and took over, um, um, invaded their shores. You said um, earlier when we were um, talking about when we were writing the novel, um, and then you got close to, to uh, you know, publishing, that somehow you came to understand that you needed to start the, the novel uh, with Mathena's um, story. Um, why did that come about? How did you choose to start with her? So I had originally started with her story. Um, and because it's not there, it does weave with the other stories, but it's not part of that narrative of coming to Australia. It's a whole different strand. I originally thought maybe I should just start. I mean, once I Move, you know, you're many, many drafts, right? Sure, sure. Um, but at a certain point, when I had a whole draft, I, I had Mathena's story start after Evangeline's uh, because I was afraid that it might be too much information to take in right at the beginning. But a really good friend of mine, who's a novelist, Amanda Air Ward, read it, and the first her first comment was, "You have to start with Mathena." And I said that confirms exactly what I had originally done, so that's useful. And I had no, I didn't look back after doing that. Um, her story is different because, for many, many reasons, but one of them is that she's a child, um, so she doesn't have the same kind of consciousness as an adult narrator. Even though my stories, my novel is all in the third person. I switched between limited third-person perspectives, which means you're really inside the mind of... Mathena, as I've said, was based on a real person. And writing her story was a lot like writing the story of Christina Olsen when I did the novel A Piece of the World, because I was so aware with both of these characters that at a certain point, their lives took a very tragic, sad turn. For Christina Olsen, after Andrew Wyeth painted Christina's world, she became more severely disabled. Um, Things sort of began to fall apart in the household, and she and her brother became quite reclusive and eventually ended up in an almost hoarding situation. And it, it just was quite negative. And I wanted to end her story on a moment of connection, a high point. So I made a conscious choice when I wrote A Piece of the World to end at the moment that Christina, and this is not giving anything away because I say this right at the beginning of the novel, but to end with Christina's um, revelation, the revelation she has when she sees the painting that Andrew Wyeth has actually been able to 
look inside her and to, to understand something about how she wanted to be perceived in the world. And that was a great moment of connection for her. And so as I wrote the character of Mathina, I realized that I also wanted to end with a moment of connection um, because in real life, this young girl was cast aside after she had been taken in by a British lord and lady, Sir John Franklin and Lady Jane Franklin. They took her in on a whim they wanted to turn her into a lady. It was a little experiment. She was only, she was young. They got her a tutor. They taught her French. They taught her how to do English dances. They dressed her in English clothing. She became quite educated. But then they went back to England, to London, and abandoned her. And in fact, had her immediately put into a terrible orphanage where she languished eventually ending up with her own people, but she really lived between worlds and they no longer knew her or accepted her. And white people were so prejudiced. Um, the Aboriginal people had largely been killed off basically. And then the remaining ones had been rounded up and sent to a settlement, which is sort of a concentration camp on a brutal island. So Mathina drowned at the age of 17. Um, they don't know whether it was suicide or murder or whether she had drunk herself into a stupor. She was, by all accounts, she had taken up drinking. She worked in a grog shop, which is a pub, and it was brutal. So after she left the Franklins, her life really um, took a turn for the worse. And I didn't want to, like as with Christine Olsen, I didn't really want to end there. So I ended with a moment when she connects with Hazel, um, which is in Hazel's perspective. And, uh, and that was a complicated decision, but that was, that was, that's my reasoning for doing it. Mm. Well, I just wanted to alert listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this afternoon. We're having a conversation with Christina Baker-Klein, author of um, The Exiles, produced by um, Morrow um, this, this, this year. Um, and we were just talking about the adoption of Mathena uh, by the Franklins. And this is the same Franklin who tried to find the Northwest Passage and, and died tragically. We, we have folk songs about Lord Franklin reaching for the Beaufort Sea. I know. I actually became kind of obsessed with his whole life. And uh, there was a mini series called The Terror, which was the name of his boat, uh, um, that was actually fantastic for period details and very entertaining. And it they uh, they do this strange thing in the miniseries, which is that it's there's a monster actually that exists on, you know, in the Arctic. But um but his story is fascinating. And actually, he kept failing upward. He kept having disastrous um, excursions. And then he got knighted. And his wife was extremely ambitious on his behalf. And she lobbied to, you know, to get all of these awards for him. Uh, and Franklin just kept getting awarded and getting ships. And people kept dying and cannibalizing each other. And it was fascinating. Um, but he he disappeared eventually. He he and his whole crew disappeared, and Lady Jane sent out many search parties 
and they never really found the answer to what mm-hmm. happened to him. But his story is fascinating. And yes, he is exactly the Franklin who took in Mathena, and he was briefly governor of Hobart, Tasmania, which is where uh, Mathena lived with them. So you've, you've dealt with the notion of adoption of indigenous people before. Um, this, this is, um, as you tell it, 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 it seems monstrous what they, they, uh, the Franklins attempted to do. Um, and if we look back in our own time and our own history, the history of the Indian schools, um, that seems monstrous. <laughs> that It just seems bizarre. So it is, this, that this, is monstrous, yeah. This book really um, um, encapsulates um, a look back, but also allows us to look very presently what's, what's happening to our, 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 our culture. Um, Black Lives Matter, um, prison reform, um, how we deal with with um, uh, class—all of these things come right to the right to the fore um, as we're reading. I want to come back to uh, Evangeline. Um, tell us a little bit more about her. Her journey uh, by ship was was, um, as we said earlier, just incredible. I read this on the Allagash River, wide open skies, but I felt so claustrophobic in reading the story. She was on a slave ship, is that right? Yeah, I, I, um, and I'm going to talk about that in one second, but I just don't want to lose that at some point in the conversation, let's talk about the present day, because there are a lot of parallels, sure. and there are for both America and Australia. And I was struck by that, especially in the past couple of years while I was writing this book. I was very much, I think my writing was very much informed by what, by the turmoil um, in our society and what's going on for African American people, for Aboriginal people, uh, for women um, in society, in our society and, and uh, for, for prison reform as well. Okay. So Evangeline, um, <laughs> Uh, yes, Evangeline is our guide to this underworld. It felt a bit like, you know, descending Persephone, um, descending into Hades. It was it was literally into the bowels of the ship. The prisoners, the female prisoners, slept on what what's called the orlap deck, which is the bottom deck below the bilge, which smells terrible and is dark and wet and crowded. And there were women and children down there. Some boats had a high mortality rate. Um, the women made a complicated sort of, there was a sort of complicated calculus about whether it was better to be with a sailor because then you would avoid the Orlop deck. And I have a character named Olive who makes those kinds of calculations quite easily. She knows She knows what's an easier life for her. Prostitution was not illegal in Britain. Um, A lot of prostitutes ended up on the ships, but it was not the crime that brought them there. Uh, And, you know, women had so few options. There were no social programs of any kind. There was no safety net in England. And in fact, the British government made a conscious decision to sweep women off the streets to take them to Australia because... um, there were all these men. There were at the time that they started importing women in 1803, Australia was nine to one men to women, white white men, I should say, to white women. Um, they were busily trying to get rid of the Aboriginal people, but 
Um, but they also needed to populate their colony because that's what Britain was in the habit of doing. So they began picking women up uh, on the flimsiest of pretenses and sending them to what they called the land beyond the seas for usually seven, 14 years or life. Uh, and the crimes that I describe in my novel, which range from stealing a silver spoon to, um, to what Evangeline was accused of a, attempted murder for shoving someone essentially down the stairs, who was fine, but, and uh, they, they, that was their policy. So, yeah, so Britain is so interesting. They were stopped, they stopped actively trading slaves, even though, to America, even though they were still profiting from it enormously. So they did have these spare ships that were, unused, not being used any longer, and they fancied them up a tiny bit, I guess really just for the crew mostly. Um, the women were not chained on these ships, even though they were chained in Newgate, uh, they were they were allowed to roam freely. There wasn't really anywhere for them to go, and they were surrounded by vicious sailors, vicious and lustful sailors. Um, but they, so the ships were slightly upgraded. The women slept in bunks that were 18 inches wide, not next to each other on the floor. Um, and then they were, they were fed enough food to stay alive and um, treated pretty strictly, but also allowed some freedoms on the ship that they didn't then have in the prisons and brought over on this four to six month journey across mm. the seas. Mm. One of the the characters, um, I believe, in the in the book that uh, represents the the beginnings of reform, both um, the anti-slavery uh, piece and and prison reform, um, is is a is a Quaker. And and w w was that um, part of the the story that you researched when you were were in England? Yeah, exactly. So Elizabeth Fry was this is a quite well known in England. In fact, she was on the five pound note <laughs> for a few years. Um, but she was a reformer um, and a very, very involved in making conditions better for women, especially at Newgate Prison and at other prisons in England. Um, and she had a group of other Quaker women and they would go into prisons, bring um, clothing and bring sewing um, implements, teach women how to needlepoint and sew and to pass the time and also to have things to wear and quilts uh, and things like that. And then she, once transport started, she really did help the women on the ships to England. And in fact, for a period of time, she gave them tin tickets to wear around their necks to identify them, which the women saw as a sort of another, yet another branding sort of, but she saw very much as a way to keep the government accountable for all these women because the records were, could be spotty. And, you know, once a woman was put on a ship, she usually never came back to England. Mm -hmm. So it was a way of trying to keep track of them. And she was um, called the angel of Newgate or the, the angel of the prisons. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, she's still quite well known, as I said today. Mm. So um, we began to talk about what you um, came to understand the, the current um, situation in America, in England, in Australia, as you were writing this, the themes that you began to see. Let's go back and talk a little bit about that. Um, you mentioned 
Black Lives Matter, um, certainly um, the prison reform, um, the role of women. Um, how did those themes more come alive as you were researching uh, this novel, The Exiles? I was really aware writing it that, and I felt this way with Orphan Train too, or I think this is something that has become part of my the theme as the larger themes of my work, that the history, history as we know it, is written by the conquerors, and those and conquerors very rarely include women, the poor, and uh, indigenous people. So whether it's in America or in Australia, there is um, a, a sort of official history that is now beginning to be questioned very seriously. In Australia, not only were the Aboriginal people shunted aside, many of them were killed in so-called wars. There's a question of whether what happened to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people was genocide. They debate that. But the truth is that there were thousands of Aboriginal people in Tasmania when the British arrived and by the mid-19th century, there were almost none. And by the 1870s, they were all dead. All, there were no, as I say, full-blooded Aboriginal people left. Now, quite a few people, thousands of people, identify as Tasmanian Aboriginal people, but they're all mixed race. And as many African Americans today say, we know that mixed race means we began in rape, many of us. So, our, you know, that our origins are, are not pretty. And so this is a legacy that's very complicated to talk about. Um, women, too, have had a rough time of it. Australian culture is very, has been very macho, and very male, uh, partly from its beginnings, these scrappy, these, you know, these bottom-of-the-ladder convicts, thousands and thousands of men who then were treated terribly, and eventually this sort of swagger became a way to stay alive. Um, but it, it has been a tough legacy for women in Australia too. Uh, there was something called the stolen generation, which is that in the late 19th and up to the quite a lot of the 20th century, Aboriginal children were taken out of their homes and um, away from their people and, and rehomed or adopted into white families, and it tore apart a whole generation of people. Mm. And actually, the government didn't even admit to it for a long time. It wasn't until like the 90s that they actually apologized. And there are now some reparations. So it's a complex story. And quite honestly, it was terrifying to take on any aspect of the Aboriginal story as a, as a writer who lives in America and is not Aboriginal. Uh, I, my, as I said, I'm, I am part British and my descendants are from England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and France. <laughs> so that aspect of the story I feel pretty comfortable with, but uh, what permission do I have to delve into the other story? What I came to feel was that I actually would be irresponsible not to include that part of it. And I had to do it because if I wanted to be honest about what that period of time was like, I needed to write about the experience of people who are not me and who, whom I'm not descended from. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I do understand it's risky to do that. And I probably will be get criticism for how I handled McFinna's story. All I can say is I did the best I could do with the tools I have. Uh, I did a ton of research. I worked with Aboriginal um, historians who are descended from the same tribe that she was in. And I, I worked as hard as I could to, to tell a story that felt honest and true. Um, recently, uh, there was some criticism about Hamilton and about how all of that was handled and Lin-Manuel's representation of some of the characters. And he wrote, he said, look, I told the story I could tell and I didn't tell a complete story. And I am sure that I didn't, I in some ways haven't told the best story. And I challenge you all to do that and to, tell many stories because there are many stories to tell. Right. Those stories are, are, are left for others to tell and, and we welcome them. <laughs> yeah, we welcome right. them. I welcome right. them. I mean, yeah. I, I, I understand that my own contribution, my own, the, what I did is one small piece of a very large tapestry mm. and that, that there are many, many stories to tell. And I did the best I could. Mm. We're talking with Christina Baker Klein, the author of the new novel, The Exiles. Um, so glad that you could be with us um, today. One of the things that um, uh, was great for me, just as a as an admirer of Shakespeare, is that you kept bringing the, the tempest <laughs> back into the story in, in different ways. Um, what was your connection there? What was your inspiration for um, including the tempest as a as a source of a touchstone, if you will? Yeah, it was such a perfect uh, play for me to play with in the novel because Evangeline has read it um, and then she introduces it. That was one of the batons that get mm. passed forward. She introduces Hazel to the story and it turns out Hazel who had grown up in Glasgow, had maybe seen an open air production at one point um, and identified with, you know, with one of the characters. But Tempest is terrific because it takes place. There's a shipwreck and it takes place. There's a ship. There's a shipwreck. It takes place on an island. It's all about discovery and, um, and an exotic land that people don't understand. When these convict women got to the island of Tasmania, which is about the size of Ireland, and it's off the southeast coast of Australia, but it's part of Australia, they were flabbergasted by the kangaroos and the wallabies and the other wildlife that they'd never seen and the strange plants and flowers. And there's a lot of that kind of description in The Tempest. So I I really enjoyed being able to make parallels there and also to have Evangeline um, and and then Hazel think about those parallels. Mm. And and Hazel um, brings um, kind of the deep women's knowledge of of the plant world. She got that from her mother as a as a midwife. Um, that seems to be another uh, theme that you 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 touch on to kind of a respect for that that kind of knowledge. I grew up in, after, so my parents are Southern. I was born in England. We lived in the South. We lived in England, and then we moved to Maine, and then went back and forth from to the South and to England. My dad taught a few years when I was, after we'd even moved here, he taught over there a few years. Um, so growing up here, though, in or we were, grew up in Bangor, but my parents were part of this community of professors in Orono and Bangor, and and it was a very craft filled world. There was a it was early 
70s to 80s and there was a lot of growing of herbs you know and uh, making of quilts and pottery being thrown and glazed there was just a whole you know and 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 tapestries being created and um, macrame remember that remember macrame <laughs> so I have that in my past this sort of maker's world of fascination with those kinds of details and in fact my mother we uh, I have three younger sisters and my she wanted she worked with midwives for my two young youngest sisters and wanted to have them at home and had complications um, ended up in the hospital but she had full fully planned to have natural childbirth at home and we cooked out of the Moosewood cookbook. They were kind of hippies, my parents. So all of that was just really fun to dive into. And there's a whole world in Australia and Tasmania of women, especially, working with native plants and no understanding how they work. And so I loved that when Hazel gets to Australia, she takes up with someone who knows about this and she quickly discovers that she there's a lot of interesting things to do with these native <clears throat> plants that are native to Australia. And in fact, there's a pivotal plot point that has to do with that as well. So I loved it. I loved working on that. Mm. And another um, uh, theme that I, I saw was that um, these women are told by society that they're not free, um, that in fact, um, you know, they, they are both exiled um, and but they're captive. Um, so um, you point out that the one of the ways that people survive is to figure out how to feel free, even when they're not. Talk a little bit more about that, if you could. Well, that was one of the things that teaching in a women's prison taught me. Um, I taught at the only all-female prison in New Jersey, uh, and there are 700 inmates. Um, 300 of them are, are in maximum security. And I taught in supermax, which was like the lifers, people who had committed crimes that meant they were really going to be there for decades, if not for the rest of their lives. And that was a fascinating experience because how do you live when you really have no hope of ever being free? And as they began to write these memoir pieces and poetry and songs about their lives, I came to see that there were many ways that they found joy. For example, they had a very limited commissary, but they had together figured out all of these recipes to make with ramen noodles, ketchup packets, you know, um, MSG soy sauce. I mean, it was just they they sort of ha had discoveries every day. There was a way in which their lives were completely circumscribed, and yet they developed new relationships. They, um, they you know, a bunch of them were working on art projects. One of them became a hairdresser in the prison, and she was experimenting with women's hairstyles. I mean, you can see that. It's one of the reviews that, uh, I think it was Kirkus, that said that it was, it was 
in some ways, a 19th century orange is the new black that <laughs> said about my novel, which I thought was funny. But when you watch that show, you do see that that happens, that you can find joy in the midst of a lot of hardship. Mm-hmm. And my the women in my novel, I, I, it sounds oppressively harsh in my book. It's really, I think, not because of the connections that these women make with each other and the discoveries that they have along the way. Mm. And something about the human spirit. Um, this, the human spirit um, perseveres um, despite Definitely. <laughs> what society um, might 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 do. Um, you've done so much research in this. Um, you've you've alluded to some of that. Other were there other surprises, things that you weren't expecting to find when you when you um, did your reading um, to get ready to write the novel. It's a good question. I mean, I read before I wrote the novel, and I have you know pages and pages of. Of, of notes of different kinds. But then even writing the novel, I had to read because you realize that you don't have any idea what a, the bustle of a dress looked like in 1840, for example. So there was a lot of that kind of discovery as I went along. Um, I needed to fill in details. I always think of that children's book, um, Harold and the Purple Crayon, because Harold has to draw the door before he can open a door and even the doorknob and then he opens it and then he's at the lake and he has to draw the boat before he can step into the boat. That's how it felt like writing this novel. I had to I had to say, well, what would a rowboat have looked like in 1840? Did it look like a rowboat today? <laughs> Were the oars the same? <laughs> you know, all of those questions. What, what did the dock look like? Um, I have a, an idea of what a dock looks like in my mind, but it's not exactly what a dock looked like then. Uh, and what did the prisoners' uniforms look like? All of those questions that come up as you, as you go. Um, a lot of things surprised me just because it was a whole new world to me. Mm. Um, I didn't know until I went to Australia that wallabies do line up at dusk, hundreds and hundreds of them on hillsides around the town. I mean, it's like you drive four minutes out of town and you're suddenly in the midst of all these, um, you know, knee-high creatures that look like miniature kangaroos. Um, I didn't know, one of the details I, I like to talk about because I, I just didn't know until I dived in, is that in the homes of the poor and in the prisons, they used these candles made out of a tallow from animal fat. And it, first of all, it melted very quickly. And second, it smelled terrible. So it just would leave enormous gross puddles that smelled awful. And that was a detail that I wove in later after I'd finished a draft of the novel because I thought, oh, this is too marvelous. I have to include it. <laughs> so I wasn't trying to gross out my reader, but um, I did want to show what it felt like to be in Newgate Prison, which was so crowded. All these women crowded together with babies and even children and in the dark. Um, but also that they eventually, in getting released to the ships, they actually felt a sense of relief. So there's a way in which incarceration is relative, depending on where you are, of course. Mm. The, the notion of, of these lives being intertwined um, um, as, as you write them, um, and, and really leads to, um, um, and I won't give away any, any of the details, but it, it, it suggests that there's a future that comes out of, of these stories. Um, can you talk about that without revealing any of the of the details? The the notion that life does uh, move on. 
Yeah. Well, I will say that one of the most satisfying aspects of writing this book is that the last section is, I jumped ahead uh, more than 20 years. So you find out what happens to everyone. I've never written a novel like that where you really have this quite satisfying ending because you have closure for um, most of the characters in the book of some sort or another. Um, And also because you understand when you read that last section that society changed fairly quickly, um, that transportation was outlawed soon after the book end, the, the main section of the book ends, you know, it began to look bad to the British press. And so once the British press started writing about how bizarre it was that they were sending convicts all these many, many months away um, to a place they'd never been and could never, that, and most of them could never return to England. It, it, the British government realized that they had a PR problem on their hands and they ended transportation. And also, quite frankly, the free settlers in Australia and the prisoners who'd gotten out and the subsequent generations of prisoners were, were, done, were embarrassed by it and didn't want it to be happening anymore. So quite quickly, the generations assimilated. Those generations of convicts assimilated and they became respectable. And so Ruby, who grows up the daughter of this convict, um, she herself has opportunities that were never available to her mother's generation. And she takes a lot of advantage of them. And so she actually ends up thriving in a way that um, the way had been paved for her to do so. Mm. And I loved writing that scene because you get some answers to questions that come up early in the book that I think most readers think have been left behind forever. Mm. Does that give you um, some sense of hope that the conditions that we face in today's world um, may be just about to change? I mean, you know, the, yeah, the, the change I have a lot happen. of hope. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of hope. Um, uh, a, a carpenter once, uh, no, a, a forester, a man who was cutting down a tree in my yard, once showed me how when you cut down a tree, there are all these shoots um, that come off the um, stump because the tree is has this last gasp of trying to live. And those eventually die out and the stump dies. But to get political for a moment, in my view, that's what this white supremacist gasp is and all this ugly nationalism that we've seen over the past uh, four years. I think it is, I think that white supremacists are realizing that the world is changing quickly and that they're no longer at the center of any universe and they're more and more marginalized and they're desperate to sort of take a stand and make a stand and that that's what's happening. And that, yes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much believe what Martin Luther King said that the arc of history is ever upward, but it, it, you know, it takes a long time to Mm. get there. Mm. And I'm very hopeful that things are changing. And I think that when you look at the traction that black lives matter had not only in our country, but all over the world. And in fact, in Australia, there have been enormous, um, there's, it's had an enormous impact on activism there. And there are all kinds of movements um, there for change. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, think we're, I think we're headed 
I think we're the world changes decade by decade and that we are headed that way. Mm. I think we agreed that maybe we could we could uh, um, include another piece from your novel, a short reading. Um, could we find that and, and yes. uh, try that out? Sure. Okay. And I'll, so this I'll is... let you. I'll let you um, kind of establish it uh, for for our listeners. Uh, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking with Christina Baker Klein, author of a new novel called The Exiles. Christina. Okay. Great. So this is a scene where Mathina is talking to Hazel. So Mathina is um, in this sort of Pygmalion story. She has been taken in, as I said, by the governor and his wife and treated, um, actually pretty neglected, but she's been educated and she's sort of part of the household. So meanwhile, Hazel, who is a convict maid in the household, is on a much lower rung of the social ladder than Mathina is. But Hazel took care of Mathina when she was ill. And now um, Mathina is about to be sent, sent away. So Hazel, Hazel is, is with, as I said, is with Mathina, and Mathina is feeling really badly about this. Hazel says, my friend Evangeline taught me a trick to play in your mind when you're troubled. You think of yourself as a tree with all the rings inside and every ring is someone you care about or a place you've been. You carry them with you wherever you go. Mathina remembered what her mother had said about thinking of yourself as the thread of a necklace, the people and places you treasure as the shells. Maybe Wanganip, her mother, and Hazel were saying the same thing, that if you love something, it stays with you, even after it's gone. Her mother and her father the spiny mountain ridge and the white sand beach on Flinders, the sister she never knew, Hazel even, each a separate shell, all embedded in the rings. Maybe she would always be alone and apart, always in transition on her way to someplace else, never quite belonging. She knew both too much and too little of the world, but what she knew she carried in her bones, her mother's love, the shelter of her father's arms, the warmth of a campfire, the silky feel of wallaby grass against her shins. She'd seen a strip of land from the open ocean and learned to rig a sail, felt the shapes of different languages in her mouth and worn a dress of scarlet satin, posed for a portrait like the daughter of a chieftain that she was. She felt her fear unspooling like a tight fist opening it was as if she'd been standing on a precipice and suddenly tipped forward. There was no longer any point in feeling afraid. She was already falling, falling through the air, and her future, whatever it held, was rushing up to meet her. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. So um, before we close, I think you've got some news for listeners. Um, I believe that you've, you've told folks that uh, this has been optioned, uh, this novel, your novel, The Exiles, has been options. Is this for a movie or a television series? It's going to be yes. beyond film, huh? Yeah, apparently so. I mean, so I, my last three novels have all been optioned, and they're all in various stages of development. Um, but in some ways, I wonder if The Exiles is, has the best shot. Um, I was talking to the director of the Orphan Train movie 
yesterday and Helen Mirren has signed on. So there's movement there. He's just rewritten the script. We've had, we've gone through a number of directors and a number of actors and (laughs) until it happens, I will not count on it. Right. But the Exiles was optioned by an all-female production team that's had huge success doing television shows. And I'm an executive producer, which I'm very excited about. And this is the team that did Wild and Gone Girl and Big Little Lies. And they have other amazing shows coming up this fall on HBO and Netflix. And they move very quickly. So I think that they're pretty serious about doing this. And also they're based in Sydney, they're Australian mm. and LA. So I think they have a lot of incentive to make this show. It's, mm. It would be a series, probably 10 episodes or something. So I'm excited about it. And I think there's a real chance it could happen. Great. Now I understand that you're going to, um, you're certainly doing um, lots of, of uh, book talks and so on. Um, you've got one uh, coming up at the, uh, the Jessup Library on September 19th, and you've invited your friend um, and fellow author, Monica Wood, to join you. Tell us a little bit about what you hope to have happen. And this will be a virtual event, not an in-person event. That's right. All my events are virtual, really, for this tour. I'm doing lots of events with authors. Um, Oh, Monica's just fantastic. It will be so much fun. We've done many events together. We're old friends. I've stayed with her in Portland many a time, and she's stayed with me up here in Southwest Harbor. So I I think um, people would be really entertained. She is, I mean, people call her the 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 novel the novelist in Maine. I think she's she's got a great um, a fan base here. So that will be fun and interesting. And as always, um, I I love being with Monica. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that on the uh, 19th of of September, 7 o'clock at the Jessup Library, and you'll find details about how to uh, pick up that uh, live uh, program. Um, Final question, um, because um, you you said your your dad was at the door earlier. Um, What what gifts did they, did your your parents, uh, Tina, your mom has passed, but um, what what did they give you um, as as a writer? Um, what, What gifts did they pass on? Well, for a long time, my the gifts I received from my mother were more obvious to me. She was a an English professor. She um, she taught women's studies. We wrote a book together, as I mentioned, and um, I felt greatly influenced by her in terms of my own interest in writing and reading and studying English literature, which I did in graduate school and in college, and um, and also in in the subject matter of my novels when I wrote. Orphan Train, my mother was in the state legislature and she was very involved with Donna Loring, uh, who is a Wabanaki elder and is now um, consulting with the governor of Maine, um, Mills. And so she, they were both very involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and other aspects of Native American rights. And so that was how I came up with this character, Molly. I had heard so much from my mother about her work. Um, and Bunny McBride also, my mother was a fan of her writing and gave me her book. So that was terrific. But in now I realize that my father's research and work as a historian has had a profound impact on me. I never thought when I started writing novels that I had anything in common with my father's nonfiction writing. But in truth, my study habits and my research are a lot like his. We both write longhand. 
both take copious notes in a similar fashion. And um, I found myself, as you know, more and more interested in writing about history as my career has progressed. And um, I've delved into these little known piece facets of it. And so, yeah, I feel I'm both parents had a, a huge impact on who I became. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon on Talk of the Towns. Christina Baker-Klein is author of The Orphan Train, A Piece of the World, and now um, The Exiles. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle on the University of Maine Sea Grant program from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest, Christina Baker-Klein. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to A.D. Brown for helping engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>